When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being with us. We have a special guest with us today. Carlton F.W. Larson is a Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of Law at the University of California, Davis School of Law, where he teaches American constitutional law and English and American legal history. A graduate of Harvard College and Yale Law School, Larson is one of the nation's leading authorities on the law of treason, a word we've hear, heard a lot lately. Larson is the author of the recently released book, On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. Welcome to Politics Done Right. Carlton, how are you doing today? Good. Thanks for having me here. Happy to be here. Well, look, it, we, we really wanted to get into this topic because it's a word that's being used loosely all over. Anything somebody says that uh, in the body politic that you don't like, it makes you a traitor. So, <laughs> but before we get into that, because of the recent election and what's going on, all, all our guests here at Politics Done Right, I ask them for their impression of what just occurred in this country. So why don't you give me your TikTok on our, the, the just past election? Well, I mean, I think this is an election where everybody in America can come away disappointed. You know, um, if you're a Republican, you just lost the presidency in one of the biggest blowouts of an incumbent president in our history. And if you're a Democrat, you had hopes that the win would have been a lot bigger. You had hopes of taking the Senate and uh, of gaining House seats, none of which happened. Um, and I think, you know, the reality is that this is a great big country that is uh, pretty evenly divided. Uh, and we have to be able to live with each other. And that's a challenge and it gets harder all the time. Now, uh, some other disappointments, we didn't win any houses, which means we'll be on the bad side of redistricting again, since this is a census year and it'll affect redistricting. So there are, you know, I, I really don't think uh, we did near as well as we would have wanted to do. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think, um, you know, everybody would really pin 2020 as the key year for fixing the redistricting problem. And it's probably going to be better than it was in 2010, but it's certainly nowhere near um, what it might have been. Uh, and certainly, you know, the Supreme Court decision on gerrymandering didn't help at all. And that's obviously, you know, totally gone now um, with the court. As a constitutional scholar, is there anything that we can do, given that in my humble opinion, I'm not a constitutionalist, I'm not a lawyer, but in my humble opinion, it seems to me that redistricting is against democracy or the, the, the way we set up districting is anti-democratic. Is there anything constitutionally that we could use to, uh, to point that out? Because I think it's quite evident. Well, I think you know, the, re the redistricting is, is a real problem. And a big part of the problem just is, is geographic concentration. Um, and that is that the Democrats tend to be concentrated in, um, uh, in, in urban areas. Republicans tend to be spread out a little bit more. So even if you drew the lines in sort of a perfectly fair, <clears throat> seemingly neutral manner, you would inevitably advantage Republicans and disfavor Democrats by creating districts that are very heavily stacked with Democrats. Uh, I mean, an extreme solution would be actually to get rid of districts entirely. Um, it's not required under the Constitution that U.S. House uh, seats be allocated on the basis of districts. There's a federal statute that requires that, but that statute could, in theory, be repealed, and you could make all of the House uh, 
seats at large uh, in a particular state. Now there's obviously downsides to doing that. You lose the close connection with constituents and there's questions of how you would actually structure that election. Uh, but in theory that could be done. And if the gerrymandering problem continues to persist, that may be something that ought to be looked at. Oh, you know, um, I am so happy that you said that. I had no clue. I thought that's uh, in, in, a, in as much as I've read the entire constitution, for some reason, that district didn't have been baked in. Now, uh, if they decided to do that, you remove that from the law, uh, that it reverts back to state law as far as how they allocate those um, Congress people, correct? Yeah. And so in, in the very early years, some states did their uh, representatives at large and some did it by districts. And I believe it was about the 1840s uh, that Congress required uh, the districts. But yes, that could be repealed. Now, in, in, interesting. Now, when it comes to uh, the election proper. Um, you, you mentioned something that's quite interesting. You said evenly divided country. Um, it's, it's scary to me. That statement to me is scary. And the reason why is I would hate to believe that the 72 million or so people that voted for Donald Trump really believe in the tenets of Donald Trump as opposed to just being red-blooded Republicans who vote the party line. I, I, which one do you think it is? Because it's a significant difference if most of these people are Trumpists as opposed to just uh, Republican ideologues. Very big difference. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it's, 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 I, I, I don't certainly have any expertise on analyzing Republican voters. Um, we do know that a large number of Republican voters voted against Trump and then voted for um, Republican members of the Senate and the House. And so the ones who voted a, a straight ticket presumably are more committed um, to the Republican Party. I mean, my, my guess is, I mean, Trump is so distinctive um, as a personality um, that it's very sort of hard to make generalizations about what's going on and what's going to happen going forward, to what extent what we call Trumpism has any legs beyond the sort of unique person of Donald Trump. I mean, can some other Republican embody those things? It's sort of hard to imagine, um, you know, who the next Donald Trump might be. It is also scary that somebody with that limited intellect, that limited vocabulary, that limited empathy, that limited just being, that limited having any sort of humanity could get such a fall. And does that tell you something about the America that you were born into? Um, well, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't make one thrill, that, that's, that's for sure. Um, you know, the 2016 election, I think a lot of people didn't like Hillary Clinton. They didn't like Donald Trump. And they ended up thinking, well, Hillary Clinton maybe represents more of the same. Donald Trump is at least something different. We can roll the dice and see if we get a, you know, maybe something different. And so, um, you know, some of it was just they didn't like Hillary. Yeah. And unfortunately, in my humble opinion, I think that uh, when they had, they had to choose between two people that they didn't like, that they chose Trump. I think it goes right back into the thing about how much does uh, sexism play a role in America, not only from a male point of view, but also from a female point of view. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I remember when I was in fourth grade, um, Walter Mondale had picked Geraldine Ferraro as his mm -hmm. running mate. And I was uh, the only person in my class who supported <clears throat> Walter Mondale. Um, <clears throat> and the teacher, we had a substitute teacher, a woman, and she told the whole class that we should all support Reagan because Mondale had picked a woman and a woman shouldn't be the vice president. You know, and this was told to me in a public elementary school, um, you know, back in 1984. And so I think there is sort of a, a deep entrenched 
sexism, and it, it's not just men um, who have some of those views. You know, I'm, I'm so happy that you told that story. That alone makes a, a hell of an informative clip because many people throw this trope most solely on, on men. And unfortunately, it has, it has, it's a sort of indoctrination that applies to us all. Now, um, Carlton, let me first say uh, thank you for writing that book. I, like I said, I didn't read the entire book, but the pieces that I've read of the book and, and the kudos that I've gotten about the book, it is definitely needed right now. So uh, what, why did you write this book at this time? Treason has been something that we've been throwing around for some time. Yeah, so I've been interested in, in treason for a long time. I actually wrote my college thesis on it uh, in the mid-1990s and then started working on a sort of substantive book about treason in the American Revolution, which came out last year called uh, The Trials of Allegiance, Treason Juries and the American Revolution. And as a result of, of that work and some of my other writing on treason, I became known as somebody uh, who knows a little bit about this. And so when the media had questions uh, about treason law, they would, they would reach out to me. Now, <clears throat> that didn't happen much, you know, because for most of the, <laughs> my career, right. the phone was pretty quiet. <laughs> well, <laughs> Trump. yeah, and then along came Donald Trump. And then, you know, pretty soon I started getting these calls. You know, he called on Russia to hack the DNC. There's this Michael Flynn business. There's uh, all of this stuff going on. What's happening? And so I started getting all these calls. Uh, sometimes, you know, I could tell the story would break and I'd get, you know, two, three calls that day asking whether or not this is treason. And, you know, this is extraordinary. People want to know, did the President of the United States commit treason, the highest crime known to the law? Um, and so that was really bizarre. And at the time, my, my literary agent said, well, you know, you should write, you've been doing this big book on the revolution, why don't you write a, a shorter book just for a, a, a broader audience about what treason is all about? And then, no, I don't want to do that. I, I'm too busy. I got all this other stuff going on. But then, you know, there's more and more news. All of a sudden, everybody's talking about treason, which is the subject I've devoted much of my life to. It's like, well, if not now, when? You know, this is, this is the time for it's it. It's a moment. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll write this up and kind of put out what I know about the subject in a way that hopefully non-lawyers can, can easily understand. Now, that is so important, uh, that, the magical last sentence, in a form that non-lawyers can understand, because I can tell you a lot of, a, a lot of times uh, these things are so lawyerly that for most of us it is difficult to understand. Now, uh, in, 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 in short and long, why don't you define what exactly is treason? Sure, so as a general term, treason is, is betrayal of a, of a country. Uh, and pretty much every nation in the world has some type of treason law. Uh, America is distinctive in that treason is actually defined in our constitution in Article 3, and it's limited to levying war against the United States or adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. And so that means Congress can't you know, simply define treason as something else. It's, we're stuck with that uh, constitutional definition. And so all of the framework of treason law really operates around that constitutional framework. Now, in your book, you wrote the following, and this is the reason why I think for me, and I think for many, it is rather complicated. And in our non-lawyerly minds, Donald Trump has committed treason several times over. So I'd like you to tell me why we're wrong. It says, according to your book, treason against the United States shall consist only in levying war against them or in adhering to their enemies, giving them aid and comfort. Here's the deal. Treason is levying war against them. Who? Against the American people. Is that correct? Against the United States, yes. Right. Now, um, let, me, let me just go off the wall here. 
uh, we have a virus that is attacking the United States right now. And it is the responsibility of the government to provide for our welfare. Now, uh, is wouldn't is, one consider levying war that which causes the death of many of your citizens en masse? No. Um, so levying war really requires you know, the use of armed force um, in an attempt to overthrow the government. Um, and so it doesn't apply to just general incompetence. Um, which, which I think is a fair description of how the Trump administration has handled uh, this. Is it time for a new heating and cooling system? Turn to the experts at Griffith Energy Services and Carrier today and get 0% financing for 18 months on a new heating and cooling system. Get the comfort you deserve from Griffith Energy Services and Carrier. Visit GriffithEnergyServices.com today for this and other exclusive offers. That's GriffithEnergyServices.com. License number MDHVACR01-2278. Griffith Energy Services. Doggone dependable. Now serving B24 at DMV window number 7. Okay, Jim, we're next in line. Perfect, Jim. Things are going very smoothly. You remember the cell phone bill? Yes, and the birth certificate. Nice. We'll have a real ID in no time. That's right. Ready to fly to Carla's graduation and then the big game. Real great work, Jim. You too, Jim. Excuse me, are you talking to yourself? Now serving B25 at window number 10. That's our cue, Jim. Excuse us. Talk yourself into real ID readiness by May 3rd, 2023. Make a plan at dhs.gov slash real ID. Now, let me expand on that a little bit, because you said it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not mere incompetence that, that's the driving force here. But could we also say if uh, Donald Trump's intent on having us infected en masse uh, would result or not would result, but the purpose of that is to ingratiate himself, let's say, with Russia? Would that be treason if it could be somehow proven in a telephone call that he made to somebody and says, hey, let's not do that because we can make a deal here? Um, that too would not be treason. Um, and this is one of those areas of treason law where I think um, the law and popular conceptions are the most divergent. Right. Um, and that is because, you know, what, if you sell out the nation to Russia, how could that not be treason, right? Or you sell out the nation to China, it seems like it would have to be treason. Um, but it's actually not. Um, and that is, um, simply aiding a foreign country isn't treason. Uh, it has to be aid to an enemy. Uh, and an enemy is pretty clearly defined as a foreign nation or group with whom we are in a state of open war. Um, that is so it's clear that you know, we are fighting them, uh, that if we catch them, they are enemy combatants, that we imprison them, that if we see their planes, we shoot them down, right? That we're in actual open war. Uh, and we're just not in a state of open war with Russia. And so that means anything you could potentially do to aid Russia isn't technically treason. Now, that doesn't mean it's not a crime. Uh, and I think that's very important because uh, a lot of people think, well, it's not treason. That means it's okay. Go ahead and do it. <laughs> Absolutely not. Okay, um, there are a whole range of other national security laws other than treason that deal with problems of disloyalty. Uh, one of them would, would be espionage, of course. Uh, and oh. so if you, if you hand secrets over to Russia, uh, you're going to be guilty of espionage. Uh, and probably the best example of that is the Rosenbergs in the early 1950s who handed nuclear secrets to the Soviet Union. Well, we weren't technically at war with the Soviet Union, so they couldn't be tried for treason. Uh, but they were prosecuted for espionage and executed. Uh, and so, yes, it wasn't technically treason, but as I say in the book, that probably didn't give them a great deal of comfort as they were being strapped into the electric chair. You know, I mean, we still got them for a very serious crime. Now, how does America experience uh, their experience with treason law over the past 250 years? 
help explain the country's history? Well, our, our country was actually founded in an act of treason against Great Britain. Uh, that is that, you know, we chose to rebel and we were levying war against the king. And that was pretty clear treason. All of our, what we call, you know, founding fathers, I don't really like that term, but um, those, those folks, they were all traitors. Uh, and they were willing to roll the dice and see if they would win. Uh, and it turned out they did. You know, and then if you think about our Civil War, that was a, the biggest act of treason in our history, right? I mean, the Confederate States of America were very clearly levying war against the United States. Uh, so it's the absolutely central theme, in, in some ways, of the two most pivotal moments of our, of our history. Professor, I have interviewed so many people over the years. And nobody has really, none of the people, I don't know if they're out there, none of the people that I've had uh, on my interviews had the gall to say what you just said. What you just said was profound. And I'll, actually, it should also provide many people in this country a certain degree of humility. What you just spoke about, the founding fathers, that was in fact, yes, an act of treason. And we can go through time and time again when that has happened. And we have made many other in authorizing many Americans that have never attempted to overthrow this country other than coming here and attempting to get a job we have put that trope on so many when most of the times these sort of things occurred was out of any kind of purview of those people so what do you say to that I'm I'm, I'm impressed not many people would ever say what you just said well I mean that's just that's what the history is <laughs> you know it's um and you know, from our perspective, we, it's, it's odd to think of George Washington as a traitor, but from the British perspective, that's exactly what he was. And if uh, the Britain had won the revolution, and, and, it was, and it was a close call. I mean, there were numerous times militarily where that, could, that, that whole thing could have gone um, the wrong way quite quickly. Uh, and then Britain would have had to decide, well, what do we do? You know, do we hang this guy uh, or, or what? I mean... Given your honesty, I, I, I've got to, I'm going to deviate from your book a tad bit because I want to hear from an expert, somebody who talks like you do. Uh, right now, we have several movements in this country. We have the Black Lives Matter movement and we have many other progressive movements that are always under attack as possibly being treasonous based on your definition, of course, not in necessarily. But it seemed to me that while many people would use the founding fathers for reasons why we should do things constitutionally and peacefully, it seems to me that, and, and by the way, we know how we operate overseas when we don't get what we want. It seems to me a bit hypocritical don't, uh, to, to throw this on these guys who have not ever attempted to overthrow the country, but just say we want equity to put them in that domain, don't you think? Yeah, and I think, you know, the, the charge of treason against people who are protesting the government, I mean, that's something that the, you know, the revolutionary generation would have understood very deeply, uh, because it clearly was treason once they started the war in April 1775, there's no question. But they were tarred as traitors well before that for protesting British tax policies. Uh, and, and they said, no, that can't be right. We're simply asserting our rights under the British Empire. And that's not treason. It's not treason to, you know, proclaim what our rights should be. Uh, and the Britain, British government threatened to tr send these people to England for trial, take, haul them away from, the United, from North America so there's no local jury, and try them for treason in England. And that was an absolute motivating factor um, leading to the war for independence and for the Declaration of Independence, that treason would be abused 
uh, to essentially harm innocent political protesters who simply are trying to make things work. And if you remember, they didn't, they had no election, they had no representation in parliament. So they didn't have a whole lot of ways of working through the peaceful system uh, back then. Wow. Now, uh, you've spoken about every country has some law on treason, etc. How is ours more distinctive, different than uh, any of these others, in your opinion? Uh, is ours even enforceable? Because you've said that in the last 250 years, one person has been convicted of, or have been accused of treason and only one conviction? That's sort of... Uh, so yeah, so one person, one person, one person has been executed under federal law since the Constitution. Uh, a couple of people under state law, actually, John Brown and Edwin Coppock, uh, right. the Raiders at Harpers Ferry, were executed under state law uh, for Virginia. But as a general matter, yeah, there's been very few treason convictions in our in our history, uh, which, on balance, I think is a good thing. I mean, the the, the, the more that you have in a country, that means probably things aren't going well, mm -hmm. uh, which doesn't mean that it didn't happen, right? I mean, you think about the Civil War. You had every member of the Confederate Army, every person who aided the, that, that army was, was, had committed treason. Mm -hmm. But of course, we didn't actually try them or prosecute them. Uh, now, I admit, I, I do not know in detail the, the treason law of every country in the world. Uh, but I do think that what's distinctive is our constitutional definition of that. And that is that it's written in this 18th century language and that we can't really modify it short of amending the Constitution itself. And perhaps one of the most distinctive parts of it is not just the definition, but the, the two witness requirement. Um, so you have to have two witnesses to the same overt act. So that means two people who saw you do it. Well, that's going to be pretty hard for a lot of crimes, particularly if they're committed, say, on, on a computer, right? If, if what you did was launch some type of you know, cyber attack uh, on the country and you just did it from your computer, how are you going to get two witnesses right. uh, to that particular offense? It's going to be very hard. Uh, and so that's an area where arguably the, um, you know, the 18th century constitution doesn't quite mesh with modern realities. Now, if you could rewrite the constitution, how would it be written? I'm Robert Conti, chief of the Metropolitan Police Department. Unfortunately, traffic fatalities are up in the district, and I need your help to reverse this trend. Seatbelts save lives and reduce the risk of death or injury. Click it or tick it. Psst, want to hear something amazing? Oh, and feel free to tell your friends too. So, Kohl's, they're having a huge sale on summer stuff. And if you live for sunny days like I do, you need to check it out. I got 40% off a new patio set, Food Network grilling essentials for 20% off, and 50% off those yard games my kids won't stop talking about. Best part? I got an extra $10 off and some Kohl's cash. It almost makes being cooped up all winter worth it. Almost. Select styles. 10 off 25 offer valid May 27th through 31st. Some exclusions apply. See store or post.com for details. Well, and there's a lot of things I would rewrite. There's a lot that I would rewrite. I mean, I, I think I, I would, the, the, two, the two I would most rewrite, of course, would be getting rid of the Electoral College and abolishing um, equal um, state representation in the Senate. I actually, actually don't have a problem with two senators per state. I have a problem with two with equal votes per, per senator. I, I would give the senators the number of votes proportional to their population. Let them still have two per state and they can each, you know, interact in committees and do all that. That's fine. The, the problem is equal suffrage um, in the Senate. Now, but I realize that's probably not going to happen. But, um, you know, that, you, you, you gave, you know, I've been arguing, not to interrupt you, I just want to mention, Scott, you brought this up. I've been arguing about that. The two senators makes absolutely no sense. But again, we know that in, from the inception of this country, we weren't always looking for true democracy. But that said, I like your idea as far as, you know, still have two senators, but 
your vote is proportional. Yeah, I mean, I think that that sort of preserves a little bit of this kind of historic function of the Senate and, and, and but, but, you know, allows it to fit more engagement. Now, the problem is Article 5 of the Constitution says you can't have any amendment that alters the equality of suffrage in the Senate. And so that seems to say that even if we tried to amend the Constitution that way, we couldn't do it. Um, and that's really interesting. And when, when I think about this, you know, part of me thinks, okay, well, how long is this going to last? Is this going to last for a thousand years, two thousand years, three thousand years? We're still going to have absolute equality in the Senate, despite you know massive changes potentially in population. Doesn't it become some point at which it just doesn't make sense anymore? Uh, and then, how do we know we're not at that point now? Professor Larson, you just uh, confused me a bit. Are you telling me that there's a part of the Constitution that specifically says it cannot be amended? Yeah, so I'll read it out to you. It's, it's Article 5. It's, um, it says, um, provided that no amendment uh, can be made that no, and that no state without its consent shall be deprived of its equal suffrage in the Senate. Does that then mean that if the that states could consent of changing the constitution in that regards, or what? what well, a state, a state could actually consent to not having equal representation in the Senate, uh, and that's sort of, you know, that's sort of an interesting thing. You could imagine, well, what if you offered a state, you know, lots of money? Right. Might might they choose to give up equal representation in the Senate? So in theory yeah, a state could waive their rights, but it's hard to imagine a situation where any state uh, would actually do that. But in waiving those rights, it still would be unconstitutional to codify that into the Constitution. That's, if you read Article 5 that way, it seems to say you can amend the Constitution every way you want, except in this one particular way. Wow. But then you say, well, why can't you just amend that part of the Constitution? Um, or alternatively, what you could do is you say, okay, fine, we keep equal representation in the Senate, but we're creating a new body called the Schmenet. And in the Schmenet, it's going to be based on, on population. And a bill can go either from the House to the Senate or from the House to the Schmenet. Uh, and that way, we have actually complied with Article 5, because the Senate still is equal you know, votes per state. But in the Schmenet, it's going to be different. So, you know, in theory, you, you could do that. Professor, you are a lawyer. <laughs> yes, I am a lawyer. That, you are true. a lawyer. All right, we are, we are coming close to our time. So this is what I ask every person that come, comes onto the show. What have I not asked you that you would have loved if I had asked you and that you want to tell the audience? All right, well, let me just tell you one story from the book. And this was something I just came across a year or so ago. Uh, and I had no idea of this story. No treason scholar had ever written about it. And it's the story of the one person who was actually executed for treason uh, against the United States under federal authority. Um, and this man was a Mexican man named Hippolito or Polo Salazar. And it happened during the Mexican-American War uh, when American forces invaded what was uh, the Mexican uh, region of New Mexico. Uh, and they announced that, well, New Mexico was now part of the United States. It was uh, everybody living there was now an American citizen, and anybody who resisted the American military was guilty of treason against the United States. Now, that's completely wrong. Um, you don't just become American citizen because the American army conquered you, right? I mean, if that were true, everybody in Iraq in 2003 would have suddenly been an American citizen. I mean, it's right. just absurd. So that's clearly wrong as a legal matter. Um, but uh, some people resisted, and some of them were put on trial. And one of them, uh, Mr. Salazar, 
was convicted of treason against the United States and hanged uh, in the plaza at Taos, New Mexico. And this was a man who spoke no English. He was a Mexican citizen. The trial was held in the Republic of Mexico. and he died as a traitor to the United States, a country in which he had never, ever set foot. Uh, this is as bad of a legal screw-up as you could possibly imagine. And when news of this reached Washington, members of Congress were absolutely appalled. Uh, the James Polk administration ultimately had to concede that it had screwed up, uh, that this was rested on a legal mistake. They said he was a bad guy, so he should have been hanged for something else. But they had to concede that, yes, technically, um, he wasn't guilty of treason. Um, And so that is the one person who has paid the ultimate price under our treason law. Um, Not an American, but a Mexican. Um, And I found that story just sort of absolutely extraordinary. Yes, extraordinary, no, no, absolutely so. Uh, Professor Carlton F. W. Larson, thank you so kindly for having been with us. He's the author of On Treason, A Citizen's Guide to the Law. You'll be able to find the book right under the blog post. And when we go live, it'll be there as well. Thank you so kindly uh, for being with us. And you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you. You too. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join. Jay Farner here, CEO of Rocket Mortgage and Rocket Companies. Last year, we saw historically low mortgage interest rates. What you may not know is that interest rates are already starting to increase, and it's likely that trend is only going to continue. Our team of experts is standing by to help you save before rates go up. Don't look back and wish that you had taken action. Call 833-8-ROCKET or visit rocketmortgage.com. Rocket. Call for cost information and conditions. Equal housing lender license in all 50 states and MLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Introducing touch-free payments from PayPal, a safe way for your customers to pay. Simply download the PayPal app and display your own unique QR code for your customers to scan. Whether you're a market seller, I'll take two tomatoes and a cucumber. poodle pamperer, <laughs> piano tuner, or plumber, signing up to accept touch-free payments for your business is easy. Touch-free QR code payments. Shop safe with PayPal.